Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law, and with me, though not physically in the same room, is Ellie Mistal. Uh, Joe, I gotta ask, how old do you have to be before it stops being cool to wear the shirt that you slept in to work the next day? I mean, Just like, uh, give me a number, I mean, give me an over-under number. Like, 10? I mean... <laughs> You're really, you're really still just in what you slept in. Yes, I mean, yes, you're I giving. Wh- why do you have to feed the negative stereotype of bloggers? <laughs> like everyone it's, already thinks we're lazy. You've got to, you. We've got to stand up to that. It's not. I'm at work. Doesn't that <laughs> count for not being lazy? I guess. When I, I was guess. ten, I would still be sleeping it off. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. No. So. Uh, yeah. I gather you're not feeling as well after the Republican debate last night? What the hell is going on? I just, <laughs> I'm going to keep my powder dry on that until we actually have some nominees. What's grinding my gears this morning, Joe, um, if I may mm-hmm. jump ahead, obstructionism, my brother. Oh, this, okay. This has got to stop. I know we live in a society where reasonable people disagree. And I understand that it must be terrible for the Republicans because their guy died. And now we're going to have a different guy who's going to like not like the things. I, I, fine. I understand that. Okay. But to obstruct every single thing that this country is trying to get done, I'm actually more pissed off about the Guantanamo thing than I am about the Supreme Court thing. How can you not even consider the commander-in-chief's proposal to deal with prisoners? How, how is that okay, man? Just like, how have we gotten to a point where the things that the Republicans are doing in Congress is okay? I mean, I, I will say it does seem a little bit weird. When you have a majority, why you say you're not even going to listen to things. You can listen to them and vote against them. That would be so much more acceptable. You have so much power to do that. It's completely okay to say, you know what? We thought about what he said. We considered it. We don't agree with it. We voted no. Like, that's, that's a thing that can happen. Yeah, you don't even need to mean it. You can, you can just do it. Don't have to mean it. Yeah. But you no, want to that's... talk about being 10 years old, sitting there with your fingers in your ears, refusing to even listen to the man. I mean, it's just, it's just childish. <laughs> Well, yeah, I don't disagree. I'm saying me sitting here hungover in the shirt that I wore last night is more adult than Mitch McConnell. That's what I'm saying. Wow. Shots fired right here on the show. So um, with that, I, is there anything else to that or you just, it's just got you mad? Just try to speak really softly today, man. Okay. <laughs> I don't think that's how this works. <laughs> But, you know, you bring up obstruction and you bring up the Supreme Court, which is a perfect segue. It's almost like you're a professional at this. It's a perfect segue into introducing our guest today. Our guest is Peter Irons. He's a professor emeritus at UCSD. He's a civil rights attorney and the author of just a ton of books. Uh, I, I don't even know as though I have a count, including Justice at War, Jim Crow's Children. And he's also 
from my personal perspective, he's the lecturer in a course called The History of the Supreme Court that is on the great courses on Audible, which is how I was really introduced to him because I've been listening to that religiously. Like I, It was my commute for days and days on end, just kind of hanging on every word of how the Supreme Court got to where it is. And so we asked if he could be on, and he's agreed, and we're super psyched. So thanks for being on the show. I'm really glad to be here, Joe. Well, so we wanted to kind of start with what is timely. We've we've lost a Supreme Court justice. We're now looking at the possibility of a new one, or we thought we were before the Senate, as Ellie kind of outlined, decided we're not going to hear about any possible replacement for a while. And I kind of wanted to see if you can put that in some historical context for us of what the nomination process has become. I mean, it seems like at the beginning of the Supreme Court, you kind of had to beg people even to be on it. And then you've went through court packing and the Abe Fortas and Bork. Like, what is this process and how did we kind of get to this level of obstruction? Well, the process really, the fact that it is highly political, which shouldn't surprise anybody, started actually at the very beginning with the first George W. Every one of the 10 justices that he put on the Supreme Court were members of his Federalist Party. And uh, then Jefferson came in and started uh, appointing what were then called Republican Democrats, and then Jackson, and all the way through until quite recently, um, it was expected that presidents would put uh, justices on the court with their same political party and philosophy. But we didn't really have confirmation hearings until I think it was 1955 when uh, nominees would come before the Senate for hearings before there was a confirmation vote in the full Senate. And so, you know, just a little over half a century since we've started this very contentious process of having nominees come before the Judiciary Committee and be grilled about their philosophy, their background, anything the senators want to ask them. And these have become spectacles now. I mean, they're televised. Uh, Lots of people watch them. Some nominees sail through fairly easily. Some, like, uh, find that their views are unpalatable to a majority of senators, and even some in their own party. But now we've gotten to a point where it's virtually impossible for a president to uh, have a nominee confirmed relatively easily when the Senate is controlled by the other party. Now, in that context, uh, what's going on today with the Republican presidential nomination is the most important factor because uh, the Republicans are dying to put it off until there's a new president next January, and they're hoping that president will be a Republican. They're also hoping that the Republicans hang on to their uh, slim majority in the Senate. And if that happens, and of course we don't know yet, but if that does happen, then the nominee to replace Scalia will be pretty much in his mold. If that doesn't happen, and we have a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate, then whoever is nominated will go through. But if we have a Democratic president and the Senate is still controlled by Republicans, then we have another battle. Yeah, and it could just keep going, yeah. When was the last time a Supreme Court nominee um, at one of these, as you put it, spectacles, actually said anything worth listening to? Bork, I can remember. Actually, Bork was the last one, 
and he really shot himself in the foot because he was, and, and I watched those hearings um, back in 1987, he was so arrogant, condescending, and, uh, and uh, just diehard in the views he expressed that uh, he came across as a really uh, unpleasant person. And not only if you watched on television, he sort of looked unpleasant. He had a perpetual frown, this uh, grizzly beard. He didn't really look like a Supreme Court justice. And I think the thing that— So he was uh, kind of a Ted Cruz for 1987. That's exactly right. Uh, (laughs) With the beard. But at any rate, that's a very good uh, comparison because they are hard-line, rock-ribbed conservatives— now, but conservative doesn't mean what it used to. I mean, we've had conservative justices who served with great distinction. The second John Harlan, for example, was a conservative, but he was uh, the kind of person who was thoughtful and uh, principled and collegial and got along with his colleagues. Now, it's interesting that Bork got along with hardly anybody in the legal profession, and Cruz, of course, doesn't get along with a single fellow senator. So that might have something to do with it. But since that time, and of course, then there's the the anomaly of the Clarence Thomas nomination and Anita Hill's testimony that he had committed acts of um, sexual harassment, the pubic hair on the Coke can and that kind of stuff. But since that time, nominees have learned to read from a script. That is, uh, every one of them, conservative or liberal, says things that are basically pablum. That is, they are not going to say, oh, yes, I want to legislate from the bench. Oh, yes, I don't care what the (laughs) founders said about the Constitution. Nobody in their right mind would say that. And so the confirmation hearings have become increasingly boring because nobody, uh, Elena Kagan, Sonia Sotomayor, uh, David Souter, you can go all the way back, to Bork and, and Thomas himself, when he was discussing his philosophy, didn't say anything particularly revealing. So what we have now is simply a situation in which a nominee will be confirmed fairly easily if the president and the Senate are controlled by the same party. If they're controlled by different parties, it will be more difficult, but not impossible. But in the current situation, it has become impossible. As you noted Senator McConnell has said, absolutely no. He's not even going to shake hands with whoever the nominee is or meet with that person in his office. Neither are the other members of the Judiciary Committee who have been bludgeoned into uh, compliance with McConnell. And this is all predicated on the hope, as I said, that the Republicans will take over the White House and retain the Senate. And so what they're going to do is drag this out, uh, certainly through the election, and then through the first part of next year. And what that will do is actually leave the Supreme Court minus a justice for over a year, maybe up to 18 months, depending on who gets nominated eventually by the next president. So, you know, this is an unprecedented situation. Speaking of confirmation hearings and how different they are, how different the Supreme Court might have looked if after Bork got dinged, if it hadn't turned out that Douglas Ginsburg was a dope fiend. Uh, (laughs) After Bork got dinged, 
everyone knows that Kennedy ended up with that slot, but he wasn't the first person picked. It was supposed to be Douglas Ginsburg until everyone found out that he'd smoked pot in the past. And I can't imagine that derailing anybody today. But the difference between marriage equality in this country and not might well have been that Douglas Ginsburg once smoked. Well, that's a very good point. Actually, I went to Harvard Law School, and I was there at a time when Ginsburg was teaching back in the 1970s, uh, although I didn't enter law school until I was 35. But And a little-known story is that uh, when Ginsburg was nominated, he was then just starting on the D.C. Circuit Court, and he was very, very conservative. He's actually still on the court and still conservative. But one of his faculty colleagues at Harvard... Wait, hold on. Ginsburg's still alive? No. Yeah. I didn't know Douglas, that. Yeah. All right. No. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Yes. Well, yeah, I did know that RBG was still technically alive. Yes. <laughs> no, no, no. We're not talking about Ruth. We're talking about Doug yeah. Ginsburg. Douglas, yeah. So, but at any rate, one of his liberal colleagues at Harvard, whom I know well but won't name, ratted him out to Nina Totenberg of NPR for having smoked marijuana at parties at which students were present. Happened all the time. I was there at the time and went to some of these. But it was basically a, a way of making sure that Ginsburg wasn't going to sit on the Supreme Court. And, of course, this was when Nancy Reagan was running around saying, just say no, just say no. And Ginsburg <laughs> was sort of caught with his, with his hand in the cookie jar. <laughs> wow. <laughs> is there another way we could do this? I mean, is, is there, as you pointed out, it wasn't always like this. Is there any way going forward that we could get back to a point where these nomination fights and confirmation battles weren't so contentious? Well, the answer to that is no. We can't do that. <laughs> okay. Um, it's, it's, possible to, it's possible to think of ways in which presidents could set up a screening panels, for example, like happens in a number of states where screening panels recommend judges to uh, governors. But we're not going to do that. It's the president's prerogative. So what we're going to see, hopefully, is that whoever gets nominated this time. Now, when President Obama nominates somebody, which he will probably do within the next month, that person basically becomes a sacrificial lamb. You know, take one for the team. Go through the embarrassment of not having a single senator meet with you not having any confirmation hearing, and the Democratic candidate for president will say, look what the Republicans are doing. They're being rude. They're being obstreperous. They're being obstructionist. And that will become a campaign issue. So that's what's going to happen. But the possibility of changing that whole process is unlikely to happen, in my opinion. Well, President Obama, if you're listening, I will take one for the team. I will do this. (laughs) <laughs> You'll go through the process. Well, I just wanted quickly to close the loop on Scalia proper. And one story that we wrote about on Above the Law multiple times over the last week or so has been at Georgetown, there was a brouhaha of initially the dean writes a fairly standard press release sort of memo saying, you know, yeah. oh, Scalia died, honor his service. And more liberal professors specifically folks who come from the tradition of kind of a critical thought said, well, no, we don't, we don't really sign on to the idea that a guy who 
basically waged war on our rights deserves to be honored. And then the conservative professors fought back. And there was a lot of talk about what kind of respect one gives somebody who died, but somebody who died who had so much control over people's rights back and forth. And it made me think as soon as that came out, I actually put in one of my writings about this, the story from your course about Roger Taney's funeral and how he was not particularly well-liked. Right. Uh, Roger Taney, of course, was the chief justice who wrote the infamous opinion in the Dred Scott case back in 1857. And after he died, having served the longest term as chief justice, along with John Marshall, almost identical in length, a lot of people, including the New York Times, said there's no reason to lament his death. He was terrible. Now, (laughs) the brouhaha at Georgetown is interesting because Bill Trainer, who's the dean there, put out a sort of, you know, standard, as you said, press release. We mourn Justice Scalia's passing, and he was a brilliant jurist and all of that kind of stuff. And two of the faculty members in particular wrote a reply, which was circulated to all the students on the email, and in which they said basically that they didn't see any reason to mourn Scalia's death, that he was a bigot, that he was a homophobe, that he was a right-wing reactionary, and, you know, basically the same kind of treatment that Tawny got when he died. And then the two conservatives on the Georgetown faculty, count them, two, uh, (laughs) one of whom is Randy Barnett, a fairly well-known conservative law professor, took objection to that, particularly that the other two liberals had uh, circulated that to all the students on the school's email service. And so it was a little tempest in a teapot. It's over now. No hard feelings. But it does indicate one thing, that the law professoriate, speaking as a former member of that myself, is overwhelmingly liberal. Even in schools, you know, that you would not expect places like Oklahoma and Montana and, you know, the the other boondocks places. But um, because of that, Scalia had an influence, and, and it's undeniable. He had an influence on a younger generation of lawyers and law professors, some of whom have become judges through the Federalist Society, mainly a conservative legal group. And they have been propagating his originalism, his textualism, the labels that he put on his judicial approach, but not with any real great success. And so the the people who are truly mourning Scalia uh, have lost their captain. He went down with the ship, and there's nobody really that I can think of to take his place. Certainly not Sam Alito, who is a very smart guy but uh, pretty boring in his opinions and his personality. Nothing against him, but he's not going to be another Scalia. Scalia was like Bork. They're both very volatile, almost volcanic, and could be extremely snarky and rude. The whole idea that Scalia was this charming person, loved the opera, went to it with Ruth Ginsburg, they were close friends. Well, that may well be true. Um, there are a lot of charming people who underneath are bullies and, you know, bigots. Donald but Trump springs to mind. The thing that struck me the most was that shortly after Scalia took his seat on the bench and after Sandra O'Connor joined the court, he wrote several opinions 
in which he used extremely unkind words about her opinions. Unbelievable, he would say. Not worthy of being taken seriously. Well, unlike Ruth Ginsburg, who apparently doesn't take things that personally, Sandra O'Connor took it so personally that she never, after that happened, never joined an opinion that Scalia wrote. If she was on the same side as him, she would write a separate concurring opinion. So his charm didn't really extend to all of his colleagues. That is amazing. I didn't know Sandy D had that had that in her. <laughs> That's some dog in her. That's- you know, I, I really admire her. I didn't agree with all her votes, but I do admire her. And she had, you know, she was from Arizona. She had that sort of cowgirl grit and uh, backbone. She wasn't part of the New York literati and intelligentsia uh, like most members of the court are. And uh, so, you know, she sort of, you, you know, you, you throw dirt on me, uh, I'm going to take it personally. Wow. That's amazing. I hope you're right about, about the whole Scalia, he was the captain. I've written a post called uh, In Death, Scalia's Might Become More Powerful Than Ever Before, because I worry that now that he has passed from man to myth, that now his theories are kind of detached from the from the seedy outcomes that his theories necessarily would lead you to, right? So it's easy to kind of say now, oh, well, Scalia was a bigot. Scalia was a walking homophobe um, because he was a real person. But as he becomes a myth, I just see a lot of uh, the next generation of people kind of not associating originalism and, and textualism and all that kind of stuff with the bigoted and homophobic outcomes that so often Scalia uh, led them to? Well, we'll have to wait and see about that. I mean, it's hard to turn from a person into a myth in about two weeks. And uh, when when Scalia becomes mythologized, we'll see what happens to the, you know, to the theories, the judicial theories that he was propounding personally. And there's a lot of debate about this going on among the law professoriates and on their various blogs. People like Jack Balkan at Yale and and uh, Noah Feldman at Cornell, but I think the point is that most people in constitutional law realize that originalism as a theory is ridiculous. When you say Edwin Meese used to say, "Well, we look for the original intent of the framers." Well, how do they express that intent? Now it's down to original public understanding. Uh, whatever that means. And the problem with that, as most of us, but not all, most of us in this field recognize, is that when you talk about the original understanding, the question is begged, understanding by whom? Now, 39 people, all white males, many of them slave owners, signed the uh, draft of the Constitution that was submitted for ratification. Several hundred people, and nobody ever kept a precise account, were members of the state ratifying conventions that ratified the Constitution and later the Bill of Rights and later amendments. And there's very little records of uh, left behind of what was actually said. There are accounts in various newspapers. People would write essays. This was before the era of law reviews. And so what was the original public understanding? Well, that certainly depends almost entirely on who you would point to. And there's another funny thing here. Scalia hated the idea of looking at legislative history to determine, uh, that's where textualism came in, 
to determine right. what the people who passed laws or ratified amendments actually meant. And, you know, because of that, you look to the text of the Constitution. Well, some of the provisions are pretty clear. You have to be a natural-born citizen. That has come up lately. <laughs> you have to be 35 years old to be president. But there are other provisions, and everybody knows them, the due process clauses of the 5th and 14th Amendments, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, the General Welfare Clause, the uh, Necessary and Proper Clause. What do those mean? What did they mean back then? What do they mean now? And there's no real connection between what happened more than 200 years ago and the society we live in today. You know, I want to get to a discussion, and you've written a book uh, called Courage of Their Convictions, where you talk to a lot of the people who actually were the human stories involved in some court cases. And you shared a little bit of that in the in the course that I just just took. And I just wanted to go into a couple of those. I was particularly touched by the Korematsu story, specifically the part where his family found out he was in that case completely by happenstance. Well, that's really interesting. Now, Fred Korematsu was my client. We reopened his case uh, back in the 1980s based on research I'd done for a book called Justice at War. And I got to know Fred. I knew him for uh, until he died, actually, from 1982 until 2005. And Fred was a wonderful, wonderful person that I admired tremendously. Very humble, you know, just sort of the average kind of person. And uh, the interesting thing about Fred is that, uh, like many Japanese Americans who'd been interned, because, in fact, after his conviction was upheld, he was put in an internment camp. But after that experience, a lot of Japanese Americans didn't really want to talk about it. It was humiliating to them. They'd done nothing wrong. They'd committed no crimes. And so there's a Japanese expression, they call it gaman, which means keep it in. Don't let other people know how you suffered. And so when Fred's daughter, Karen, was in junior high school, uh, one of her classmates gave a presentation in which she mentioned the Korematsu case. And Karen had never heard of it, but of course that was her name. So she went home and uh, said to her dad, Dad, one of my friends mentioned the Korematsu case in school today. Are we related to him? Oh, wow. And Fred said, well, that was me. And Karen had never known this. She was a teenager. And so that's sort of indicative. But the interesting thing about Fred, and I distinctly remember two episodes. One was in the courtroom in 1983 when there was a hearing on the motion to vacate his conviction. And Fred stood up. Judge Marilyn Patel was presiding. And uh, Fred stood up and made about a two-minute statement. This doesn't usually happen in these kinds of hearings. It was not a trial. In which he was just so eloquent in a very understated way. He said, Your Honor, I remember 40 years ago, I was brought into this courtroom in handcuffs. And the only reason is that I looked like the enemy. And then the other episode in 1998 was being in the East Room of the White House when President Clinton gave Fred the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And that was a really, if you think about those things, when Fred was picked up on a street corner in his hometown, San Leandro, California, 
for no other reason than that he was Japanese and he was in a place he wasn't supposed to be after the evacuation was ordered. And then to be in the White House to get the highest civilian honor in this country. And President Clinton said, you know, there's a long list of civil rights heroes, Homer Plessy, Rosa Parks, Linda Brown. And to that list, we now add the name of Fred Korematsu. Actually, it gives me goosebumps right this minute to recall being there at that time. That says a lot about how a person's determination to vindicate their rights, no matter who they are, you know, still has a powerful effect on our society. And that's, I think, the greatest legacy that Fred left behind. One person can stand up and do this. I've honestly got nothing to add to that amazing story. I mean, (laughs) if the government interned me in a Chuck E. Cheese for 10 minutes, (laughs) I would never let anybody hear the end of it. (laughs) I have T-shirts printed, never forget the Chuck E. Cheese. That is an amazing story. That must have been an amazing man. Well, it was, and, and that whole experience. Now, one of the things that happened after we got Fred's conviction vacated in 1983 was that rather than say, well, okay, I got my record cleared, I got my voting rights back, and uh, now I'm just going to go back to being an ordinary citizen. Fred was a draftsman by trade. He took on a role as a public figure even though he never became a polished public speaker, and that was one of his great attributes. He was just an ordinary person. But he devoted the rest of his life to the broad civil rights movement in this country. And particularly after 9-11, when there were intimations and threats that we would do the same thing to Arabs and Muslims in this country, round them all up, and that actually happened in terms of Cubans back during the missile crisis in 1982. But at any rate, Fred stood up and went around the country, spoke to lots and lots of groups, schools and all kinds of groups, reminding people that if we don't learn the lesson of what happened to Japanese Americans in World War II, it's going to be repeated. And in fact, one of the things that I agreed with Justice Scalia on, he gave a speech a couple of years ago the University of Hawaii, in which he was asked about Korematsu, which he very much opposed to his credit. Scalia thought it was a terrible decision. But he also said, you know, it can happen again, and it probably will. So that's one of the lessons. And uh, in her opinion in Fred's case, Judge Patel, who's still around, she's a senior judge, a delightful person. I had dinner with her a few months ago wrote that particularly in times of national crisis or war, we must be eternally vigilant that no person, regardless of who they are, is ever singled out on account of their race, their creed, or their color. I'm paraphrasing, but that was her basic message. (laughs) What better argument against Trumpism at this moment in time than that? (laughs) Well, I think we've reached the end of our time today, but thank you so much for being on this show, Professor Irons. Everything was fascinating. I loved, loved that course so much, and I really wanted to go into the Korematsu stuff, largely because that was the section that was so astounding to me, because it was not only good stuff, but it was you were part of it, you know? Well, you know, that's what makes it so interesting to me, 
And of course, the course, the history of the Supreme Court, which is available from the great courses, is something that I'm very proud of because it gave me a chance to talk to people both on audio and video about something that's really important to them, which is, you know, how the Supreme Court in our society makes decisions that affect all of us and that we really should keep track of what they're doing and who's on the court. And of course, that's the issue of today. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you all for listening. We've had a lot of fun here. If you are not following us already on iTunes, you should subscribe. You should also give us reviews there, give some stars. It helps us move up the algorithm when people are searching for legal podcasts. Read us on Above the Law and ATL Redline. And follow us on Twitter, Ellie's at, at Ellie, E-L-I-E-N-Y-C. And I'm at Joseph Patrice. And with that, I think we're done. So we'll talk to you in the future on another episode of Thinking Like a Lawyer. Bye. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.